0: If you are new here, my name is Luke and I'll be your host for today's interview, and I'm thrilled to be joined with yet again another significantly underrated Bitcoiner over there on Bitcoin Twitter, Macro Jack. How are you doing this, Arvo?
1: Hey, Luke, I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on. Pleasure to be here.
0: Anytime, my friends. Uh, your tweet threads are honestly some of the best tweet threads over there, not just on Bitcoin Twitter, but also uh, Macro or even the wider FinTwit Twitter. So I had to get you on the podcast because you have a number of very interesting threads on topics that we talk about lots here on the channel. So pretty excited to get into it.
1: Yeah, me as well. Let's do it.
0: Yeah. So just recently I uh, did an episode with Tom Luongo and Tom Luongo has a pretty fascinating thesis about uh, everybody's good friend, Klaus Schwab and the great reset. And the the, the title of that discussion was, is the great reset failing? Because Tom has a thesis that the US is fighting the great reset. Um, But lots of people messaged me, they emailed me, they hit me up on Twitter and they said, hang on you didn't actually explain what The Great Reset is. So I've browsed and perused a few of your uh, threads, Jack, and you have some great threads breaking down on what The Great Reset is. So I thought, hey, let's do that for the listeners. Let's start at step one and actually explain what The Great Reset is.
1: Sure. So The Great Reset at a fundamental level is a theory that kind of Came from the Davos class of the World Economic Forum and uh, started to become popularized, I would say, shortly after COVID kind of took the world by storm in March 2020. I think Klaus Schwab, who's the founder of the World Economic Forum and um, you know is brought up a lot in this context, wrote a book that was published called The Great Reset in I believe maybe June 2020, July 2020, uh, 20, so shortly after kind of the virus Uh, took over the world. And um, the idea here is they're using crisis to shape the future of what they'd like the world to look like. So I think the actual language they use is we have an opportunity to, or we we have the ability or opportunity to shape what we would like the future to be. So kind of this great reset is, in uh, my opinion, a way to control food, energy, and money markets. So in order to do so, of course, uh, fiat is kind of the front and center here because really this all happens through capital allocation um, and, and uh, screening processes like uh, environmental social governance, ESG, which has become a very hot topic in the past couple of years. So really the Great Reset is a theory um, well, on the global side, it's kind of their idea of how they like to envision the future. They would like to use artificial intelligence to kind of allocate resources. They, uh, you know, I, I think there are some people who are maliciously acting, and I also think there are people that in this Davos World Economic Forum class that also are just technocrats. They believe that uh, technical experts should rule over the masses um, because they, you know, find themselves to be more intelligent and think they can make better decisions. So it's kind of a mix of, I believe, to be malicious and just kind of arrogant people who are trying to control the future through controlling the money, which ultimately allows them to control food and energy as well.
0: I couldn't agree more. Um, That's kind of my worldview on the elites and all of the perceived crises that we are actually living through here in the 2020s. Um, You touched on something very interesting there. Klaus likes to call uh, the whole let's say, medicine mandates and the lockdowns as an opportunity. That's what he always talks about. The Great Reset and 2020 showed us that we have a rare and narrow shrinking window of opportunity to reset the world. I think it just all goes back to, I think there's a quote that says, Um, the elites or the people running the world, they'll create a problem, then obviously people react to that problem, and then the elites will go out there and propose their pre-packaged and pre-planned problem, or sorry, solution to that problem that they created in the first place. Um, I would encourage the listener to definitely uh, check out this thread that I've pulled up on screen uh, that you wrote, broken down the Great Reset. It's pretty comprehensive um, and it absolutely blew up on Twitter, 7,500 likes. That's, that's a thread gone viral. So uh, great work there, Jack. And I think that's a pretty good breakdown of what the Great Reset is.
1: Yeah, thanks, Luke. I appreciate it. Something
0: else that you definitely touch on as well is obviously uh, ESG. So uh, for anyone who doesn't know what that is, that's environmental, social and governance investing. Um, ESG kind of plays a really big part in this kind of great reset framework. Um, maybe I can just throw the baton over to you, Jack. Um, what? How do you define what ESG is?
1: Yeah. So uh, ESG, again, is the environmental social governance. Uh, It's kind of a screening process that has been widely adopted, not only by companies, but also countries in, uh, in the past decade or so. And it's certainly become more and more popular, especially in the last couple of years. The way I think about this is it's essentially a way to subvert the capital allocation process. So rather than capital flowing to its best uses, so its most productive use cases, um, as it would happen in a free market, ESG is a way to control capital allocation and make sure that it flows to, I would say, politically uh, approved or popular uh, use cases. So an example of this would be um, maybe some of your listeners are familiar with what happened in Sri Lanka earlier this year. The very quick summary of that is um, in order, so Sri Lanka was trying to kind of play this ESG game that is pushed from the same Davos World Economic Forum class. And in 2021, in order to have a higher ESG score, which um, would signal to this globalist class that they are, you know, environmentally friendly, they're diverse, you know, all the kind of the buzzwords, right, that uh, we, we hear so much about. So in 2021, Sri Lanka actually decided that they were going to um, ban chemical fertilizers uh, for the 2022 year. And what ended up happening was um, because of that, they had a significantly less output of crop because the soils are so debased at this point that um, they're so used to fertilizers. And if you don't use fertilizer, then the crop output is going to be severely diminished compared to what it's used to be. So in order to get this high ESG score, Sri Lanka um, decided not to use any fertilizer for their crops. And I think they're actually usually a net exporter of commod- of agricultural commodities. And what ended up happening was they had um, a huge crop shortage. So they started using all of their foreign exchange uh, reserves, their FX reserves um, held by the central bank to start importing food. Eventually that ran out. so you know, in the process of trying to play this political ESG game, uh, the country completely collapsed. I I forget if it's president or prime minister, he fled the country kind of, you know, in the midst of this crisis that um, was due to complying with this ESG protocol. So um, just one other thing to add there as well is uh, this is kind of goes back to the energy crisis in Europe as well, where, you know, there's been uh, at least for a decade, maybe two decades, there's been uh, heavy allocation to you know, favorable green energy, right? Which is perceived to be wind uh, and solar mainly. Um, and there's been a kind of de-emphasis on reliable fossil fuel energy. And, what we, and that's all been kind of in the same ESG framework. And what that's led to is now an energy crisis in Europe, which is also creating um, a global food crisis as well. So, you know, by playing these games, um, we're severely distorting the process of allocating capital which is distorting then supply and demand of crucial resources across the world.
0: That's a comprehensive breakdown. and That's exactly how I see the energy crisis in Europe playing out. Um, just had Preston on the pod last week and we are talking about the energy crisis in Europe at length. So if that interests the listener, head back over and check out that episode with Preston. Um, And obviously, I've been following the Sri Lanka issue as well um, pretty closely. And like, I think the biggest thing people miss is Sri Lanka was the poster boy, the poster. What do you call it? Poster child boy for. uh, Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think that's the phrase. But they were the one that Klaus Schwab kind of held up on this pedestal and said, look at how great Sri Lanka is. They have this near-perfect ESG score of 98.1 out of 100. I think the Prime Minister of Sri Lanka uh, wrote an article on the World Economic Forum website in 2017, and I think the title of that article was something like how we're going to make our country rich by 2025. And the TLDR of that article that the Sri Lankan Prime Minister uh, wrote, it was all, yes, we're going to adopt these ESG frameworks laid out by your truly Klaus Schwab and the World Economic Forum. And that was 2017 and 2022, like you laid out, Jack, they're living through their largest economic crisis in history. So the biggest thing about ESG is it always fails. Central planning always fails. We've seen that throughout the 20th century. Capitalism has outcompeted communism um, on many, many occasions. And this kind of gets into the the, uh, podcast I recorded with Tom Luongo. Uh, We were kind of asking the question, Okay, maybe all of these countries around the world aren't so aligned with this, uh, you know, Great Reset agenda. Are countries like the U.S. opting out of the Great Reset? Um, There's some signposts maybe in the U.S. that show, um, you know, a lot of the states are actually opting out of what BlackRock is proposing with this ESG framework. Um, I think I saw recently there's 19 state attorney generals in the US out of the 51 states. Um, So 19 of the state attorney generals are suing um, BlackRock or they're they're asking the SEC to investigate BlackRock uh, for their ties with China. And they're all pulling their money out of these uh, ESG investment funds. So there's lots of things. what well, I think there's some cracks appearing in the ESG kind of great reset narrative. Um, how are you looking at the geopolitics of everything, Jack?
1: Yeah, no, it's a great question. So I did listen to your interview with Tom uh, that you recorded in the past month or so. And I think he makes a lot of uh, interesting points. And I think before hearing him, I was maybe pretty zoned in on thinking that there was alignment globally for the Great Reset. And I still think that there, there is, but I'm going to maybe preface that by saying, I think Tom is right to say that there is certainly a discrepancy now between the United States and other countries when it comes to monetary policy. Uh, he You have to give him credit because I think he was one of the few people who predicted the the uh, level of rate hikes that we're seeing in the US today, what where um, many people, including myself, were kind of skeptical for rates to be as high as they are right now. So and that's really and just for everyone to be on the same page, that's surely because of the amount of debt in the system. But I will say that although at this point it does seem like there's a clear divergence between what the Federal Reserve is doing and also the support of what seems to be commercial, some commercial banks as well. And what the ECB and the um, Bank of England and uh, Bank of Japan, all the other main central banks, there's clearly a divergence between their monetary policy. Now, I'm not sure if that is truly a, I'm not sure if that's truly a result of a divergence between how they are kind of Seeing the future, you know, great reset versus not great reset, or if it's also maybe has something to do with the U.S. trying to kind of temper expectations and also keep the masses at bay. Because I, in my personal opinion, I think if inflation was as high as it was, uh, as it is right now uh, in in the U.S. where I live, and the Federal Reserve was continuing to print money, then I think that brings into question for a lot of people, their credibility as an institution. And it also would anger people as well. Why are they not acting to try to calm inflation? Um, You know, why is there no action being taken? So, you know, I can't, I I like Tom's theory and I I think there's a lot of weight to it. And um, I, I could certainly see him being right about how this all plays out, where there's a divergence between the great reset and not. But I also think that there is just maybe a layer to it where, you know, central bankers are acting uh, in their like dual mandate, right? Price stability and and uh, maximum employment. Even though, <laughs> who who's to say what stable prices are? I don't think we have stable prices to begin with. But um, anyways, the reason why I say all that is because I'm still a little, I'm I'm still not sure if that is that is happening at the geopolitical level, or is it really just a matter of, all right, we have a pretty big mess on our hands in the us that so we need to get under control and ultimately i think the arbiter of truth will be the us fiscal situation as rates continue to go higher and um we could talk about kind of like the the debt issue and, and the debt spiral that uh, james lavish and, and luke groman and others like to discuss um but i think that'll ultimately decide where things go in the us and globally
0: <clears throat> yeah i think that's a great point Um, that's the one thing with this potential thesis, um, that is still kind of up in the air. Um, like the U S does have the perfect political cover to execute this, uh, mission to bankrupt Europe, uh, with inflation so high. So like, um, people like Tom and myself and Phil, who's also a co-host of the podcast, uh, the Bitcoin Made Simple podcast with me. Um, like uh, we're, we're not exactly sure what is happening. We're kind of trying to read what power's intentions could be. Um, and he certainly could just be raising interest rates uh, to fight inflation. That is the consensus narrative. But there is also this other hypothetical scenario that's pretty interesting to watch. So I think over the next few months, as inflation looks like it's rolling over right now, it'd be very interesting to see what power does with interest Interest rates. Um, I think CPI came out this morning or yesterday, and it's was it. I, I didn't see the exact reading. I think it was uh, declined again. Though I think it was in the sevens, um, and power still raising rates. So that's certainly a uh, watch this space situation. Um, so there's the two sides um, of that that coin there. Um, but macro, you did kind of touch there on the debt spiral. Um, maybe we can jump into explaining. Um, the global debt spiral and what is going on in the macroeconomic scene
1: yeah so um kind of at a fundamental level what's happening is there is a ton of debt in the system globally um the us again we're on base is about 130 uh, percent debt to gdp which is extremely high kind of historically speaking for sovereign nations but when you start comparing it to other countries, it it doesn't even seem that significant. Um, I, I think Japan might be 250%. And I think global debt to GDP is about 400%. It's There's just a ton of debt in the system, which is a function of really a uh, significant amount, uh, just kind of the post 1971 fiat monetary system where governments have been able to Issue debt really without any ties to hard money, so that's kind of where we find ourselves at this long-term debt cycle that I know you've spoken about, and um, it's something that I've learned from Ray Dalio as well. And really, the long-term debt cycle is just you know we're used to talking about the short-term business cycle where it's maybe six to ten years. There's the uh, there's productivity and there's economic growth, and then eventually that kind of tops out, and then there's a recession, and then that cycle repeats, but then on the longer term, there's a long-term debt cycle and um, these t- cycles tend to take 80 years or so. And we find ourselves at kind of the end of this long-term debt cycle, where now all these sovereign nations have um, a substantial amount of debt on their balance sheet. And really, there are a couple of different options that are available to them to get themselves out of this fiscal position. This was actually in a IMF published a report in 2015, I believe, called the liquidation of government debt. And if I'm recalling correctly, there might be five uh, five different ways to get out of a debt situation. That was in this report. The first would be growing, you know, growing faster than um, faster than the interest expense on the debt, which at these levels is is really not viable um the other would be austerity which you could imagine but you can't imagine any politician running on an austerity platform saying they're going to cut all sorts of spending and entitlement programs and ever having a chance of winning office so i don't think that's possible um third would be like a restructuring or an explicit default on the debt obligations um which happens quite a bit in the emerging market world but when you're a country like the united states where you can issue when you issue debt in your own currency, you're more likely to print the currency than you are to default on those obligations. Um, so there is kind of a privilege that the US and some of the other main uh, central banks have when it comes to their debt obligations. And then um, the other main option would be uh, hyperinflation, which that is never a good situation. Um, and the fifth option would be financial repression, which is probably the likely outcome for the United States and if other central banks can pull it off um, them as well. And really financial repression is the Russell Napier, who's a economic historian and strategist describes it as the art of stealing money from old people slowly, I believe, because uh, essentially financial repression is creating artificial demand for government securities. So suppressing the yields on the securities while there's a more elevated level of inflation. So over time, you could imagine if you're getting paid a couple of percent on your government bonds and the rate of inflation is double that your purchasing power is being, uh, is being stolen on a real basis over time. And that's good for uh, a country like the United States with 130% debt to GDP ratio, because that will, dissolve their debt uh, over time. So getting back to the <clears throat> the debt spiral, so really what where we find ourselves now is I believe long-term that financial repression is going to be the, let's say the decade two or three macro uh, tailwind. So I, I like hard assets for the long-term because I think inflation will be higher than interest rates. In the short-term, we find the U.S. hiking interest rates, as we were just discussing, and because of the sheer amount of debt in the system, the uh, interest expense is kind of becoming untenable. Um, I don't have all the numbers off the top of my head, but you know I could tell you that the higher the rates go, the more of uh, tax receipts are going towards spent uh, going towards paying down interest expense and then also entitlements. I think Luke Groman uh, calls them true, true interest expense, which is entitlements plus uh, interest expense. Um, And we're kind of close to hundred percent of tax receipts going towards paying that. So just trying to sustain the fiscal situation of the U S. Now the issue is, as interest rates continue to go higher. That is going to put pressure on the economy. So there will start to become layoffs, which means there's going to be less tax receipts in the form of, of let's say personal income and also put pressure on asset prices like equities and homes. So, you know, there's this issue where, higher interest rates are increasing the interest expense that the us will have to pay and at the same time the revenues the taxes are decreasing because of um those higher interest rates as well so then we get into a situ- situation where there may not be enough revenues to pay the expenses and the only option would be to lower rates again and start printing money
0: that is a breakdown of the eight-year long-term debt cycle oh, that was brilliant dude Um, And that's kind of like, um, I've looked into that um, a lot as well and kind of Dalio's 80-year long-term debt cycle thesis. uh, That's kind of framed a lot of uh, my macro uh, view of how I think the 2020s will unfold. Um, Governments simply have too much debt. When governments have too much debt, they have to default on that debt. I think the stat is, we talk about this stat um, ad nauseum here on the channel, um, I think since the year 1800, uh, 51 out of 52 governments who have hit that 130% debt-to-GDP ratio um, have defaulted within 15 years. So once you hit that 130% Rubicon, your government defaults within 15 years. The only question is, how do they default? Is it inflationary default or is it deflationary default? And like you said, when they've got the magic money printer, um, the, the the most politically palatable way to default on government debt is just let inflation run hot, um, pin interest rates lower than inflation, and it kind of uh, burns away the debt. You're simply paying back the debt with devalued dollars. Um, so that's kind of how I see the 2020s playing out as well, man. Um, like even with the US raising rates so aggressively like they are today, interest rates are still only at like 4% in Fed funds or whatever they are. Um, I don't watch them on a short time timeframe. Uh, but inflation's like 7%. So there's still... Like you're still losing money and I, I, I don't know the exact numbers, but I think the US debt to GDP ratio would be falling. I'm not sure at the moment. I, I honestly don't watch it in the short term, but um, yeah, very interesting times. That's for sure.
1: Yeah, and I'm, I'm happy you brought up that stat as well from Hirschman Capital because it is so important to highlight that you know 51 out of 52 have defaulted. And like you said, it doesn't need to be an explicit default. Um, There are implicit defaults and the United States has done it several times in the past um, with confiscation of gold and then revaluing the dollar against gold, uh, I believe in maybe 1933 and uh, 1971 as well, defaulting on the gold standard. So, you know, it would not be something that we haven't seen before for uh, a country like the US to implicitly default on their obligations by inflation.
0: 100%. Um, Something, another thread that that you wrote that I want to get into today um, is actually regarding, uh, is fiat money an existential threat to civilization? Uh, So we talked a lot about the macro, but this kind of uh, civilizational decline that we're going through um, over the past 50 years is something that's um, really top of interest for me. It's something I follow pretty closely. So I read that thread and I loved it. Um, Maybe you can break down exactly what you mean um, with why fiat money is an existential threat to uh, human beings and our civilization, because I think a lot of people don't quite under- uh, they don't quite understand just how important money is to a civilization.
1: Yeah, no, it's um, it is often overlooked. So the reason why I wrote that is because going back to some of the topics we discussed earlier. Controlling the capital allocation process really allows you to control everything. I believe it was Henry Kissinger who said, you know, control the money, control the world. And that's exactly right. So, you know, to, to first even before we even get into that, it's just important to understand that uh, if there's a monopoly on money, which a central bank is, and they can control the capital allocation process, then they're effectively able to kind of control um, control. Uh, much of the world. Now I will caveat that by saying right now there's the commercial banking systems. So, you know, that, that to some degree, those also control how capital is allocated. But you know, as we start to think about like central bank digital currencies and um, the, the great reset, right. And, and, and what they envision for the future, uh, if they have absolute control of the money, then they will be able to control everything else. So, Um, In terms of fiat money being a threat to humanity, I think we can just kind of look back to what we spoke about earlier. Again, um, ESG is a fiat uh, screening process essentially for capital. Um, Again, uh, in Sri Lanka, I haven't um, seen much recently, but I know a couple of months back um, that country had kind of collapsed because of a food crisis that was artificially created due to misallocation of capital to play these globalist games. The same thing is happening in Europe with energy as well. Now, I think that these are all fiat crisis, uh, crises, because without being able to control money in a politically favorable way, and if money just kind of controlled, uh, if money flowed to where it was needed the most, um, then we wouldn't really have as many crises that seem to be manufactured um, by essentially a globalist agenda I don't I wouldn't say that everything is manufactured there's but there is some degree of contrived cri- uh, crisis versus natural occurring but either one are seen as opportunities for them to take more power over us so I believe that fiat money is a threat to humanity because as long as they can control the money then they'll be able to kind of control the outcomes of countries and um, and either create crisis or, you know profit for, from them and get more control from them. So that's really what's going on and I think uh we already have enough evidence to to know that fiat money is kind of the root cause of all of this.
0: That's exactly how I say it, dude. I mean the, the website what the fuck happened in 1971 kind of that was a big orange peeling moment for me and it's something I use when I'm trying to orange pill everyday normies, the first thing I send them is that website, what the fuck happened in 1971? And you can see all of the negative externalities that have been thrust upon our civilization since we depegged pegged um, ourselves from gold and the entire globe started using this fake fiat money that's not backed by any hard commodity. Um, I think that's the first time in, in history, in 5,000 years of monetary history, that every single country and currency around the world is using fake money money that's literally backed by nothing and governments can just print out of thin air. Um, you mentioned one of my favorite, you, you jump in.
1: I was just going to say you're exactly right. And, um, you know, what's frustrating is, uh, the process of discovering money and money competing happened over thousands of years. Right. And ultimately gold was the hardest money that, um, that human beings chose to store value over time. And pretty much every single event following 1913, um, well, it goes further back for central banks and other countries, but with the Federal Reserve, every single step since creating the Federal Reserve, um, so every progression that's happened has actually regressed us as a society. It's taken us further and further away from hard money, which has completely distorted our lives. And uh, it's really made us most people unable to save if you cannot afford assets. So then you're unable to kind of build a life. And, you know, it's really just kind of, everything comes back to the money and exactly right. Um, when we have fake money, then we we have a lot of consequences from that. And, you know, we need to fix the money.
0: 100% dude, we need to fix the money. We need to fix it fast. Um, one of the distortions, I suppose, uh, that is present in um, living under this fake money world, um, is, is uh, the media. Um, so the mainstream media, I think play a pretty big part in deceiving people about what's really going on in the world. Um, and then I stumbled upon uh, a three, is it a three part article series that you've got on your Substack titled a mostly peaceful heist? Uh, is it three or four? I, I know I read three I wrote parts. Four,
1: yeah, I wrote four parts.
0: OK, well, anyway, I've read the first three parts um, of your series titled "A uh, Mostly Peaceful Heist, and I thought it was very illuminating. Um, and I think uh, you touched on many things uh, that I have been thinking about uh, for a long time in terms of the role that the mainstream media plays and how we're not taught about money or inflation. Uh, so, Jack, maybe you can tell us the uh, impetus um, of what inspired you to write that um, article series.
1: Yeah. Um, so I was inspired to write that because it's such a blatant psyop of moderate inflation, right? So that was kind of the original thought that got me on this entire um article series and just kind of digging into the basis of our monetary system and all the lies that we're fed and you know, ultimately how that how that ends for us. So, you know, to, to kind of summarize what I wrote in those pieces, we are all kind of born into, and this is another article I wrote, but we're all kind of born into this fiat cave, right? So, you know, we, and we'll talk more about that, but essentially, you know, we're, we are all born into this world of now fiat money, and it's kind of been this way for a couple of generations now, and we are never really taught what money is or... Um, you know, what it's used for, or why we have it. None of these fundamental ideas that involve money rather that we we just kind of like, all right, go earn money. Like you need money to live what you do. But um, we're never, we're never really understanding like from first principles, what money is. And then we kind of grow up in this financial system where it's, you know, we need moderate inflation and, you know, federal reserves, a good guy that, They just make sure that inflation is not too out of control. And, you know, we need a little bit because it's good for the economy. And, you know, prices just go up and that's how that's how it works. And, you know, this mostly peaceful heist that's taking place is not so peaceful anymore. But what started out as a mostly peaceful heist was the lie that moderate inflation is good for an economy and is naturally occurring. You and I both know and I'm sure most of the listeners know that prices Naturally, go down because of productivity and, and technology. They don't go up. That is strictly because of the manipulation of the money supply over the long term. So, you know what what started as a moderate inflation that was a mostly peaceful heist was stealing from savers over a longer time horizon in a more consistent and modest way, and also, uh, you know, making their lives more and more expensive. Now we, after decades of expanding the money supply and uh, making people's savings, the value and making their cost of living go up, you know, now we're kind of at this, these crossroads, especially after 2008 to 2020, where monetary policy jacked up the prices of assets and even grew the wealth divide larger. And then again, after 2020, where they printed $6 trillion in the US. And I think uh the billionaires of the world, they grew their net worth by 5 trillion. So it's like it's not a coincidence where this money goes when uh, there's new money created. And there's a reason why they create it, because it, it benefits those who control the money the most. So what began as a mostly peaceful heist of, you know, let's say moderate inflation, one, two percent a year is now much higher than that. It's reported at seven percent. But we both know that you know, based on the actual definition of inflation, it was over 40% in the U S in, in two years, and prices are much, much higher than they were. And I can't even remember what prices were like in 2019, but every time I go to the grocery store, I'm amazed by how much my bill is. So pretty much, you know, this lie was perpetrated for so long and no one really questioned it because it was mild enough. Like, all right, we're gonna steal your savings very slowly. Your cost of living just kind of goes up. That's how everything works, right? But now it's gotten much, much more obvious and if we continue on this path, things are going to get even worse. Uh, like it's, it's not a peaceful heist anymore. Um, it's it's a very much a blatant robbery, especially when you print 40% of, the, of money uh, in two years and you're paying people 0% on their savings, right? Like that's, that's a robbery, uh, that's time theft, and that's uh, not a mostly peaceful heist it's certainly
0: not peaceful anymore. Uh, I thought that like the, the name for that article series, that's brilliant, uh, peaceful heist, um, because that's one of the biggest. Oh yeah. We,
1: we should probably should talk about that as well. Where I got the name of that was just, um, I think it was in 2020 with the CNN reporter and, um, you know, it, it, it says peace. Uh, I forget what it says. It says. Fiery. Oh, yeah. Fiery, but mostly peaceful protests. And there's just like a bunch of vehicles burning in the background. And it's, you know, the media obviously lies to all of us about everything. And it's the same thing in the financial system as well. And, And moderate inflation for so long was that mostly peaceful heist.
0: That's uh, that's exactly what it is. I just quickly brought up uh, part one of uh, that four part series you wrote, and you can see there, of course, it's CNN. It's, it's always CNN when we're talking about propagandists. Uh, but th- there's that uh, pretty outrageous and ironic uh, title that CNN ran fiery but mostly peaceful protests after police shooting. Um, I thought that's a brilliant name for the series. Um, And the whole idea of inflation as well. This is something I really want to double click on because it's the propaganda that's been pushed down our throats so strong in the past 50 to 60 years. Um, We're told that inflation helps the economy. We're told that inflation is part of a healthy growing economy and it's the way things have always been. But this little chart here is part of my orange peeling package for when I'm, uh, when I'm crossing some normies who are mildly interested um, in economics and uh, how Bitcoin fits into all of it. And it's just a simply, it's a 400 year chart of inflation and deflation. And you can see before the year 1900, you can see we would go through these natural ebbs and flows of inflation and deflation. So inflation is the blue, and it would typically be followed by periods of deflation, which is in the green. Uh, But you can see what kind of happened um, in the early 1900s was we didn't really see any periods of green. We didn't see periods of deflation anymore. We only ever see blue. So that's periods of inflation. Um, and that's because um, in the early 1900s, obviously we had the creation of the central banks and we um, saw the slow erosion um, of uh, the gold standard through um, lots of different steps. Obviously the creation of the Fed 1913 and then um, 1934 Five, was it when FDR seized the gold, 6102? Um, I'm not entirely sure. And then obviously, ultimately, 1971, uh, we saw the complete abandonment um, of our currencies today and they're pegged to gold. But this chart here, I really love it. And I think that's a, a great point you brought up there uh, surrounding um, inflation and deflation. We're told that inflation is good and healthy, and it's not. It's, it's a robbery. That's exactly what inflation is.
1: Yeah, I've actually never seen that chart before. It's pretty interesting just to see year to year for over about 400 years, that fluctuation between inflation and deflation and just how deflation is virtually absent now, you know, aside from a depression where that's just a function of a liquidity crisis because they stopped stopped printing money, um, which I don't believe would, would ever happen again. I think inflation or even hyperinflation would happen before a depression but it is interesting to see that. And it's, it's really unfortunate. I mean, we're, we're essentially victims of a heist. Um, then most people don't even know they, they don't know it.
0: That's exactly right. And it's a host, uh, it's a heist that we get no voting either. That's the thing that really outrages me. Um, I think it's Jeff Booth. He has a really good, um, well, he said something really interesting in a, maybe a couple of months ago in a podcast that really piqued my interest he said, if somebody broke into your house and they stole 2% of your belongings every year, you might not actually notice that. Like if somebody stole 2% of your knives or your forks or who knows, even your chairs, if you're a Bitcoin, you shouldn't have chairs anyway. But just imagine a <laughs> robber breaks into your house every year and steals 2% of your stuff. You might not notice it. You might be able to kind of, the central bankers might be able to get away with it, the thieves. Um, but when it becomes 40% a year, like we're talking about in 2020 and 2021, all of a sudden people are starting to wake up and realize, hang on a minute, maybe things aren't just quite right. Maybe uh, 40% or 20% inflation, maybe that's not quite right. People begin to wake up um, out of a deep slumber and maybe some of them make their way out of a fiat cave. Um, Jack, this could be a good little uh transition into another article series that you've written on your substack. Um is and is this one, this is a four parter and this is titled The Fiat Cave from memory. An allegory yeah.
1: An allegory the Fiat Cave an allegory of monetary deception. Apparently I like four part series, but <laughs> I think I think that's going to be put to an end this week. So Oh, let's um, go. But yeah, no, you want to talk about that one?
0: Let's do it, brother. Break down what is the Fiat Cave for the listeners.
1: Yeah, so again, we're kind of born into this system, right? Where we we never know what money is um, we're, we're from a young age. You know, you're, everyone kind of grows up in a different situation. Maybe you have you had money struggles as a kid. Maybe you didn't. But you know, money is very prevalent because you're always around it. Money is kind of it, it's the medium of exchange. So anything that you want in life, you're going to likely have to use money to to obtain it. So we're always surrounded by money, but yet never in grade school, never in high school, or, you know, usually not in, in college or anything after high school. Um, are you ever taught <clears throat> what money is? And, you know, everyone likes to talk about the Bitcoin rabbit hole. And I think that's a great analogy. Um, but I also think that it's just the process of understanding money and sound money and Bitcoin is also could be compared to Plato's allegory of the cave, which for those unfamiliar, essentially, there are uh, prisoners who have been chained in a cave since birth and they sit there, they're prisoners, um, they cannot move their bodies, their, their necks are chained too, and they stare at a wall. And on the wall in front of them are shadows that are casted from a fire behind them. So there's there's jailers of the cave that walk behind them and hold objects those objects shadows cast onto the wall in front of the prisoners. So they're, they're chained into the cave and um, essentially their reality are the prison. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, exactly. And uh, essentially their reality um, is the shadow on the wall. Now, one day, uh, one of the, sh- one of the prisoners is uh, freed from the shackles and he gets up and sees the fire uh, behind him. And, you know, initially as you can imagine, if you're sitting in a cave in darkness your entire life, and then you turn around and look at fire directly, I'm, I'm sure that would really hurt your eyes. And uh, so that happens. He sees the fire and at first kind of the pain, he wants to go back to the, he wants to go back to the wall, you know, his comfort where he where he's lived his life. But um, depending on where you read it, uh, you know, he either walks on his own or he's dragged out of the cave and eventually he makes it out to the, to the exit of the cave and is confronted by you know the world, right, and sees the sun and spends time outside of the cave and experiences the world for what it truly is, and realizes that essentially his life had been a uh, has, had been deception that entire time. He wasn't actually living; he was merely just watching shadows on the wall. So then he goes back into the cave and he goes to tell the other prisoners, you know, what he's discovered that there's a world outside, and and you know they they have no interest in hearing that. They uh, they want to stay uh, prisoners in the cave and watch their shadows on the wall. So, you know, that was just important to preface with because, you know, similar to going down the Bitcoin rabbit hole, I would just that process of understanding what sound money is, what Bitcoin is, is kind of similar to escaping the cave in in Plato's allegory, of the cave, because especially in this fiat cave that we live in now, where again, we're being stolen from via inflation and also taxation, that's a whole nother thing to get into, but you know, our savings is being devalued and our cost of living is going up. And what ends up happening is we don't realize the root cause of that. We don't understand that the money is being debased by what I called the fiat jailers. So really a corrupt partnership of government and central banks who, you know, collude to debase the money for their benefit and to keep us prisoners of the monetary system. And what they do is, you know, similar to the Plato's allegory of the cave, they cast shadows on the wall. And really, these shadows would be in the US, the two party system. So it, it, it becomes a political thing where, you know, I'm a Democrat, I'm a Republican. It's the other it's the other people's fault. You know, it's your neighbor's fault. That's that's who you should be mad at, not um, really ever understanding why their quality of life continues to get worse and why, you know, they're they're having all of these struggles in life. And really that's what the Fiat Cave is. It's the ruling class. They're siphoning wealth from savers. They tell you that it's the Putin price hike, or they tell you that it's an oil and gas company, or you know, they tell you that it's just the Biden administration. And in reality, it's it's both parties. It's um, this is the kind of the farce that exists in our political system, because like you said earlier, regardless of who you vote in, we still have this Fiat monetary system that is stealing from us. and We have these people who use it to their advantage and try to keep us prisoners in the cave. Um, So, yeah, that's that's what the Fiat Cave is. And and just really that. And, you know, I think it's worth mentioning as well, just understanding Bitcoin and and going through that whole journey of learning about it. And you come back and you tell other people you want to you want to share what you've learned with them. And most people don't want to hear it. It's exactly the same as Plato's Allegory of the Cave.
0: This is exactly right. It's a brilliant analogy. I wish I had a thought of it myself. Um, I think it's an apt title for the Substack too, uh, the Fiat Cave. Um, everyone listening in, you've definitely got to go and give that a read um, after you're done with this recording. Uh, something else that's an interesting analogy that I thought of, or maybe you said it, I can't remember, or maybe you wrote it in the article, but you mentioned um, uh, the Matrix So obviously um, there's that quote from the matrix where is it Morpheus says to Neo, um, the people enslaved in the matrix, they're going to fight so hard, so viciously to defend the system because their whole life depends upon the system. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly, it's very similar to the Fiat cave. The people just don't want to be woken up.
1: Yeah, no, it's really a shame. Um, People always talk about, uh, you know, biggest barriers to Bitcoin adoption. And in my opinion, it's simply apathy. Mm-hmm. People are very apathetic. Um, you know, my my opinion is most normal people they go to work, they come back from work, they have dinner, they might watch like TV for two or three hours, and they go to bed. And you know, um, not that doesn't make them bad people. People have busy lives. People have to make a living and put food on the table and you know raise families. And um, but. A lot of people don't have time to understand what Bitcoin is and then for those who do they I think they're just a little they're a lot of people are closed-minded and they're content in the life that they have and they don't really want to go anything beyond that and you know they're comfortable being prisoners of the fiat cave I suppose It's a
0: great way to put it And um, apathetic is a great way to put it as well. I think a lot of people in Western nations are just so, well, there's firstly, they're so overworked. Um, So I think, uh, I can't remember the exact stat, but in the 1980s, I think it took you, um, it took the average wage earner, something like uh, 35 hours of work a week to be able to provide a family of two um, an average house with an average amount of food and water and electricity and goods and services. So in 1980, I think that number was something like 35 hours per household. So between the man and the woman, they could work 35 hours. And I think today that's that, to provide the average family of two an average house with the average amount of food and goods and services, I think that's that something like 80 or 90 hours now. So that means instead of one person working full time, both parents have to work at least full time just to get that same average quantity of goods and services that you got in the 1980s. So to your, to your point, I think most people just don't have the time to sit down and think about money and think about what's wrong with the world and think about where we're being lied to by our governments and central planners, um, because I, I don't think it's yeah. just the money. Um, there's there's lots of other regions we're getting lied to as well, Jack.
1: Yeah, and I was I was going to say I I tweeted something out like that today as well. I I haven't seen um, I haven't seen I guess that study or article that you just mentioned. If you could send it to me, I'd love to take a look at it. But you know, even just kind of thinking through, speaking with my parents or um, you know grandparents or just older people, you kind of get a sense of what life was like. And, um, yeah, I mean, people have smaller families today or they have no family and a lot of people are working twice as hard or have, you know, dual income households. And, you know, you look a couple generations back and one, uh, one income was sufficient, uh, much bigger families. And the quality of life was, I would say, objectively better. Um, you know, the food was healthier, right? People spend more time outdoors and, it's, yeah, I think it largely has to do with the money that's being debased.
0: Let's talk about food. Uh, that is something I did want to bounce off you. Um, I, cause I, I think I might've heard you say on a podcast, um, that you're talking to uh, Texas slim and you've been to, um, a, a few meetups and you know, you've tried to shake a rancher's hand. So, uh, how, how do you see, uh, the whole nutrition side of Fiat food? Um, and what are your thoughts on just personal nu- nutrition yourself?
1: Yeah, so what are my thoughts on fiat food? So again, I, it's no coincidence that the nutrition nutritional guidelines kind of came up in the nineteen seventies after the fiat money standard begun, right? And ultimately, I think what it comes down to is, and if you, and I'll plug Safadine's book as well, you should read the Fiat Standard if you haven't checked it out already. It's a, it's a great read. It's engaging. It's entertaining, as you know anything Seyfedean, uh writes or says is. Um, But anyways, yeah, I mean, it's no coincidence that as we got fiat money and our money began to be debased, also our food uh, was also debased as well. So, you know, rather than using animal fats um, such as tallow or lard um, or even like a nice uh, oil like olive oil or coconut oil, now everything has canola oil or um, soybean oil. And just seed these seed oils, oil. right? They're, yeah. they're just industrial produced. They're very cheap to make. It increases margins. You know, they're able to advertise it as heart healthy and all these other, uh, all this other propaganda. Right. Um, because again, fiat money is also paid for like research to, to campaign and, and create propaganda to say all of this is healthy. Um, so yeah, I mean, fiat food, is directly related to fiat money. Um, It's just the debasement of money leads to the debasement of um, our nutrition and health as well. And um, I was certainly was never always a healthy person. Um, I'm 26 right now. And I would say in the past year, 18 months maybe, I've been much more intentional about um, my own nutrition and health and exercise and all of that. it's largely due to just the Bitcoin community, which tends to be a positive influence in many different spheres of life, um, as I'm sure you know as well. And, you know, I, I think it's very important to be extremely intentional on in what you eat today, because, you know, if you go to the gra- grocery store now and you're not really paying attention to what you put in your body, you have, it's it's all like industrial sludge, processed food. Um, you You may look at it and it's, There's 50 different ingredients on the back and half of them you can't pronounce so you know i think people just need to kind of go down this rabbit hole as well on the nutrition side and really we're to tie it back all to the beef initiative and texas slim um i think i first heard him on marty bent's podcast uh probably over a year ago now at this point and i was like this is a cool guy and i I like his message and i want to learn more about this so I got involved with the beef initiative i've written um a couple of articles for their Substack. i went down to their event in georgia back in september um and yeah it all starts with shaking a rancher's hand you can just get go out you can go on your laptop google um and and see like what farms are near you and just get out there and meet some people and learn about you know their lives why do they do what they do why how, how do they raise their food why do they why do they like to raise the animals that they do? Why do they grow the crops that they do? And just learn about everything that you're putting in your body. It's, it's important. Um, You know, low time preference on the money, low time preference on your nutrition as well. If you want to be around for a long time to, you know, see your generational wealth, then you should have the generational health uh, mindset as well. Right. Um, So, you know, it's, it's important. And we can kind of get into like inflation hedging and financial and, you know, food security and all of that as well. But really at the bottom line, it's, it's just important to establish those connections with local food producers and, you know, learn, learn about what you're eating. And they're always really great people. I I feel like every time I've met a farmer or rancher, they've been some of the nicest people I've ever met.
0: That's the same experience uh, I've had. Uh, before I, I uh, escaped the open-air prison of Australia, um, I lived in North Queensland, and um, there's lots of ranches up there. It's pretty much all just farms up there um, on the Gold Coast and further north. So there's lots of ranches up there, and they're very friendly people. Um, the whole seed oil rabbit hole that you mentioned, that's one that I encourage every single person listening to this rip to go and investigate um, just give it 20 minutes of research and investigation and i guarantee you you won't be touching canola oil cotton seed oil sunflower oil or any of that garbage that has all that linoleic acid in it there's one really good youtube video about 20 minutes long i think it's uh, produced by vox has a few million views on seed oils um, i watched it and uh, my jaw dropped like it shows very nicely um, how Procter and Gamble, um, obviously a massive American company, um, I think they had their hand in a lot of the companies. That began to have all of this excess waste and excess oil in the early 1900s. So obviously we saw the rise of manufacturing and all of these large, um, all of these large factories that were using cotton, and um, so we had cottonseed oil as a byproduct. Then obviously with the uh, discovery of oil, we had all sorts of oil and crap as byproducts. And Procter and Gamble was like, we have all this waste. What can we do with it? And they literally just turned this waste into oils and they paid, I can't remember the exact figure. So um, um, I don't t- don't take the exact quote, but it was in the billions of dollars. Um, they bribed the American Heart Association, billions of dollars in the early 1900s to say that stuff like sunflower oil, cottonseed oil um, is healthy and good for your heart. And they bribed all of these scientific journals and studies to say that saturated fat um, and cholesterol that's found in your eggs and your red meat—that's what's giving you heart attacks. Um, so again, listeners, go and check out that twenty-minute video. It's very well researched, very well produced. It's not a documentary; it's more like a—it's uh, more like a movie that you can watch with your uh, missus or spouse who needs a good orange pill in. Because it is—it's it's fast, it's clickbaity. It's not like a boring documentary. So go and watch that out. They also have some charts on there showing that before the year nineteen hundred. Um, we didn't eat or cook in anything other than animal fat. So tallow, Mm -hmm. like you mentioned, and there were no heart attacks in America. But then after 1900, when we started um, eating sunflower oil, cottonseed oil, you can see the correlation. It's uncanny as the consumption of cottonseed oil, sunflower oil explodes in the 1900s. So does correlation uh, to like cancer, chronic diseases, like heart attacks, all of that starts to become a thing as we start eating these seed oils. So, um, that was a bit of a long rant and a tangent, but I feel very passionately about seed oils and and the food, because it, like you said, um, if you want, uh, if you want to see your generational wealth, you need to also protect your own health. Is that what you said? Something along those lines?
1: Yeah. Generational wealth and generational health. Love it. I love it. Yeah, no, it's, it's so important, man. Um, and you know, for people like I said, I, I've been going down the health and nutrition rabbit hole and being more intentional about it myself and really just the past year, or probably 18 months or so. Um, I was pretty fat like three or four years ago, to be honest. Um, so I would just say, you know, anyone out there, uh, I found the Meat Mafia podcast to be a fantastic resource. I've had the pleasure of meeting uh, both the hosts of the show and you know, they have really fantastic guests on all the time. So, uh, yeah, check that out and, you know, shake a rancher's hand. It's, it's really easy and it's quite a nice experience and it's fun to build those relationships.
0: It's a brilliant podcast. Um, I actually just stumbled upon the meat mafia podcast maybe a month ago when they interviewed, uh, Adam Curry. And, and I was like, cause I've always followed their Twitter, um, uh, but I never got into their podcast. Um, and then, yeah, they're great blokes, um, really, really knowledgeable fellas in that industry. So uh, that's another plug for the listeners to go and check out. Um, Jack, we're going to do this one a little bit backwards. Uh, Normally, I ask the uh, interviewees their background at the beginning of the podcast, but the way this one's panned out, let's do it at the end. Uh, So what's your background, what you're doing before Bitcoin, and what led you to finding Bitcoin?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, So let me think, I first discovered Bitcoin in 2017, um, uh, August of 2017. At the time I was a senior in college, uh, I studied finance um, and someone, an acquaintance of mine had you know told me about Bitcoin and I didn't really know too much about it. He was a shitcoin and uh, options degenerate. And uh, he was just telling me to buy some right because it was gonna go up in price. And he was right, I, I think I bought, um, a small amount, maybe like $200 worth of Bitcoin in August of 2017. And uh, I saw that $200 go up to eight, $900 um, when Bitcoin peaked out in December of 2017. And then I wrote it all the way back down um, to whatever it was, three or $4,000 per Bitcoin. And it really wasn't until uh, 2018, so probably about a year after I bought it initially that I started to learn a bit more about it. Um, and I first started reading. Um, I, I think the first thing I ever read when I was like, "All right, I need to figure out what I actually own and let's you know learn more about Bitcoin." Um, the first article I read was a bullish case for Bitcoin by VJ Boyapati, which is a great place to start because it's probably half hour, forty five minute read, and it really does a great job of just discussing history of money and you know why Bitcoin. Is the future of money? So that's always a great one um, that I share with people who are new to the space. And then, yeah, I mean, uh, I worked in New York for a couple of years in traditional finance, and uh, ultimately in 2020, um, I kind of became, I would say, Bitcoin investor to Bitcoin uh, Bitcoiner, let's say, in 2020, just when I was living in New York and the whole world shut down, and I was working in traditional finance at the time, and Really, what uh, frustrated me and upset me was just seeing the k-shaped recovery as it was referred to at the time, where a lot of my peers and um, just the industry in general and Wall Street did very well, um, making you know record trading revenues and you know being huge beneficiaries of all the stimulus and low interest rates and all these asset prices going up and it really was a crazy thing to work at the industry at the time because everyone was just feeling... Um, very euphoric and very wealthy. And, um, it was frustrating for me because, uh, I was working in the industry, um, and I didn't really agree with a lot of what was going on in the world at the time. Right. And it especially frustrated me that to see that people were being locked down in their homes and, uh, businesses were being destroyed yet. Um, wall street was just making, uh, a ton of money. Um, so the K-shaped recovery kind of, uh, jaded me in a lot of ways. And um, with more time on my hands, not living in New York and just kind of being away from all the noise that city life brought, I spent a lot more time learning about Bitcoin and just macro in general in 2020. And that's kind of what's led me here today. Um, I still work in traditional finance, but not really, it's not a Wall Street firm. I work at a startup now, Um, uh, but still in like the finance industry. Um, ultimately <laughs> we'll be working in the Bitcoin industry, uh, I hope at some point in the future. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's, that's really my background.
0: I love it, dude. Um, I think 2020, um, I was very similar to you, 2017, obviously Bitcoin caught my attention. Um, I left university in 2017 to study Bitcoin full time and I didn't actually truly get Bitcoin until 2019. Uh, I think I read The Sovereign Individual 2019 and reading that book before the lockdowns happened in 2020, uh, that made the lockdowns and all the tyrannical government actions in 2020 make a whole lot more sense. Um, A bankrupt government is a tyrannical government. Um, Jack, I I think I've had you for over an hour now, my friend. So if there's anything you think that we didn't hit on today or if you have any final comments uh, for the listeners, fire away.
1: Yeah, I would just say um, thanks for having me on, Luke. I mean, we touched quite a bit. If anyone wants to get in touch with me, just um, follow me on Twitter. Uh, Send me a DM if you'd like. I'm more than happy to answer any questions or if you have any comments. Um, But, yeah, no, it's really been a great pleasure, Luke. I appreciate your time, and uh, I hope to do it again soon. And for the listeners, you can just find me on Twitter, macrojack 21 and my sub stack is fiatcave.substack.com, but that's also my Twitter. So that's Perfect. all you need.
0: Thank you so much for coming on, my friend. Uh, a link to your sub stack will be in the description of today's video, as well as your Twitter handle. I would encourage the listeners to go and check out everything you write. It's phenomenal stuff. Um, so again, thanks for coming on and thanks for what you're doing, um, trying to educate people about the matrix and drag them out of the fiat cave, because that's something I think we're all trying to do.
1: It's tough, man. Yeah, but we we need to keep working on it. Uh, a lot of people want to stay prisoners there, but we gotta we gotta help them out.